Hey everyone, welcome to episode 168 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Castor-Apple. With me is Lee McLeod. Hey Lee. Hey Chris. How's it going? You know, pretty good. Had a nice little mic tutorial before the podcast, so hopefully my volume levels are a little better now. Well, hopefully. It would be a shame if our audience is hearing this and they're like, man, Lee just sounds horrible today. Like, then we'll know we screwed up, so. It's tricky because you have, you do the editing and I don't. And I just speak very softly. Yes. So, did a little bit with mic positioning and level adjustment and stuff. And so, hopefully, we are a little more matched. Like, I certainly go in and even out our levels during audio editing, but the closer you can get during the actual recording, then the easier it is and the more natural everything sounds. So anyways, how's your day been? How was your weekend? I know we were together for a lot of it. Well, I got to see you a bunch, so it was pretty good. I mean, we had a cool standard tournament. I liked watching that. Yeah, we did the Mana Traders standard tournament. Uh, unfortunately, the scheduling, the timing was not ideal for running a standard tournament with coverage. It was the same weekend as the MPL and rivals league splits which were standard and meant that there were like 30 other magic streams playing high level competitive standard at any given time wasn't this also the weekend of the open the in client arena event that was yeah the the qualifier weekend yeah, the qualifier, i think the open excuse me is this coming weekend but yeah so everybody who wanted to play standard could spend time playing standard in that everybody who wanted to watch standard could watch any of the like several dozen high-level standard streams from MPL and Rivals play. So, unfortunately, that left our tournament in a little bit of a, like, black hole of Twitch viewership. (laughs) But it still was a good tournament. Like, really great players, and, like, our top eight was stacked. Yeah, we had, like, several players I recognized from outside of Magic Online, which is not always the case with, like, a tournament this small, because this one was a small one, where Mm -hmm. you'd expect, like, the real grinders to be in. Yeah. Yeah, but we had uh, Tiago Saparito in our type 8. Yeah, we had Kellen Pastor, we had Nathan Stoyer, and just like a lot of different decks over the course of the weekend and a lot of different takes on kind of the main archetypes, which I, I guess is kind of a feature of Standard right now. Like, there's no one way to build any particular concept. Yeah, and that's one of the cool things I like about Standard. Uh, one, like, especially since I had been playing a bunch of Teamer Ramp, leading up to the tournament, just because that's what I didn't ended up showing, playing the most. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the top eight, that's the the team of ramp deck in this tournament, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, did really well. But mm-hmm. I hadn't seen any of the gameplay. And then when we got to the top eight, I finally looked at Tiago's list, and it was way different from the one I had been playing. Like, yeah. Like, by, yeah. like, a lot of cards. Yeah, so actually one of the segments I want to do today, one of the things I want to talk about is kind of the primary card differences between like versions of these decks and just talk about like why you would choose one over the other and kind of what we prefer and maybe but but i don't think any of them are hard locks either way i think they're not matters of personal taste but matters of like predicting what you're going to play against and and how you want to build your deck but i i think noticing those and figuring out when you would want to do them is an important part of bringing the proper 75 to 95 cards to any given tournament it's, it's kind of like old standard where you had to like plan around different game plans instead of just slamming like the most powerful card that's about to be banned in your deck yeah as fast as possible before we hit the main topics do you want to you want to finally shout out the patrons 
Yes, I want to shout out some of our new patrons that we've picked up. I think several of these patrons uh, stopped in because of our most recent bonus episode. Just a little encouragement. I, I assume they were on the fence already and then we uh, we gave them a little nudge. So we really, really appreciate that. It, it is really cool. Like, obviously, if you just want to keep listening to the podcast, that is support for us as well. Uh, or if you want to share it with your friends uh, or leave a review on iTunes or anything like that, that's all super helpful and free. But if you got a couple of bucks you want to throw our way, that is really cool. We usually put it into equipment and paying for software and things like that. I just ordered a new microphone and uh, yeah, so the, the support really helps us upgrade our technology and try to make the best stuff that we can. So thanks to our newest patrons, Flume, Ben Horstman, Christopher Hoffman, and Matthew Hayden. You guys are awesome. Uh, everybody who has been a patron is awesome. And yeah, thank you honestly so much. It, it's it's huge to to get that, the support that we get. Yeah, it's really cool too, seeing new people show up in the Discord and get to say hi to them, you know? Yeah, every time... I see every time my phone pops up and it says welcome X and I see that it's from our discord that like warms my heart up a little bit. It's just a really nice feeling. I actually hate welcome messages in every other discord. I have them all, all the welcome channels of every discord and then muted except for the Grindcast discord. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That makes sense. All right. looks like for our topic one, we are talking about Hades and how Lee <laughs> or can't get Orpheus and Eurydice together. So I don't know how deep we can go on the second part of that topic. <laughs> well, I put this in here because you told me, hey, the episode documents are up. I haven't put any topics in there yet. And that's the first thing that popped into mind. Yes. Well, I'm sorry you can't get them together, but keep trying. And they I promise that they will. <laughs> it's. I mean, I've already played this game through and had them together. So I know it's possible. That doesn't right. bother me. But what are the cute like uh, Greek mythology things they put in there? The game I didn't noticed the first time or maybe it wasn't even there mm -hmm. when you have drinks with orpheus he you, you come in it like fades to black as they're like talking and you hear like drink sounds or whatever and then it comes back in and he's finishing a sentence and he says and that's why you should never look back that's the moral of the story never look back <laughs> and the, that's a reference to the story of him trying to get eurydice out of the underworld where he could hey he's gonna let eurydice go but he ha she had to walk behind Orpheus, and if he ever looked back, he lost it. He lost the chance. She had to stay there forever. Well, his main song, the the hook is him just, like, yelling, don't look back, and just, like, rocking out on his lyre. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I, I feel like that's that's pretty pretty well acknowledged in the game. I am definitely partial to Achilles and patroclus because uh of a novel that i read more than anything else song of achilles which is a, a phenomenal book by madeline miller although not even her best work circe is a life-changing novel that i recommend highly to anybody but both of these are like reinterpretations of greek mythology that are much more like understanding of their focal characters and treat them with a really deep humanity that is super super fun and and really interesting and kind of heartbreaking so that's why there's always a like a soft spot in my heart for achilles at this point 
sadly, as far as I know, they just never they never see each other again. In in in, in the game Hades, at least. Oh. All right. Well, I won't spoil anything <laughs> at all. I mean, it's fine. I, I they, when I got as far as I did in the like beta of the game, they just could never see each other again. It was it. Oh, wow. that was the end of it. It was yeah, very that sad. Is, that is truly tragic. But no spoilers on this podcast. So. Sure, of course. <laughs> I'm 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 more of a fan of Sisyphus and Boldy. I do appreciate <laughs> the inclusion of Boldy and Boldy's blessings in the game. Okay, we can get away from the the fluff talk, topic. Topic. Yes, yes. <laughs> we can we can talk about some standard and stuff. A lot of standard over this past weekend. You know, there was our tournament. There was the MPL and Rivals League play, and there was also you know just generally lots of people playing in the qualifier on Arena. Although much harder to get like results from that because that wasn't a tournament with registered lists or anything. So. All you could see is people tweeting like, I 15 won with this. And it's like, all right, but that doesn't really tell me anything. Yeah, it's really cool to see the data aggregate stuff come out because I really like that. Even though I know that one of the, I think MTG meta, one of the MTG data sites, I don't remember which one it was, mm -hmm. uh, they, they were analyzing the rivals MPL matches. Yeah. Came a little under fire because they weren't, like the data set they're using is not that it doesn't hold up against like a big sample because it's not a big sample, right? But even they, so, yeah, yeah, go they ahead. never are that big. So yeah, yeah, exactly. They're just never that big. So you just have to like infer what you got, which is like one of the all-time great magic tweets by I have no idea who at this point. Uh, playing, it might be it's Alan Bogan. El Ellen Bogan, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like playing magic is inferring just bunches of matches from a very small sample size. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, that's really what we have got to do here. And I mean, part of the problem with that is, you know, when I'm looking at like this chart from mtgmeta.io, it tends to like, I accept the results here that confirm my already held beliefs about matchups and what's going on in this format. And I reject the ones where I'm like, yeah, that can't possibly be true. So classic looking know. at statistics, essentially. Yeah. You look at the confidence interval and stuff, and you can only, like, reject it so far. Like, if I thought that the Yorion Esper deck was favored against Rogues, but then I look and see that Rogues actually has a 59.4% win rate against it over 106 matches, which is a 95% confidence interval of 50% to 68%, like, it's pretty clear that Rogues is definitely favored against Esper Yorion by some amount. And so I would need to tell myself to reevaluate at that point. So there is some amount of useful information here. Some of these matchups that have, you know, a nine match sample size are not the most convincing things in the world. But I mean, even honestly, I'm looking at Slesnia Blink versus Azorius Control. It's got 30, 29 matches, 17.2% uh, or 8% to 35%. And you would have to convince me that there is a 35% matchup in like between two Yorion decks. Yeah. I mean, I think that matchup is pretty bad for Selesnya, but I would put it at, you know, my gut would say around 40 after watching it and stuff. Yeah, ex exactly. And the, the base is 17. And 17% in magic. <laughs> like, you have to, like, work. You have to be a very favored to have a 40% matchup, I feel, in magic. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a 17% matchup means that there's something 
you know, that's a rogues deck milling Uro with no plan to deal with Uro. Like, that's how you get a 17% matchup, if the bad thing is just guaranteed to happen every game. But anyway, before we're talking about, you know, statistical analyses, <laughs> what were we on about? <laughs> I mean, we are just looking at meta breakdowns, and, you know, we can talk about the decks that did well in our tournament and stuff. We've got our meta breakdown, just to kind of, like, go over... And I think our our meta was pretty representative of what was played over the course of everything in the weekend. You know, we didn't have a huge number of players, but in our tournament, Demir Rogues was 30% of the field. That seemed to be pretty true across the board of, like, everything that I looked at, including Rivals League play and uh, MPL League play and the other tournaments and stuff. Rogues was just by far the most played deck this weekend. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people did identify how powerful the couple threats, really powerful enablers, or I guess payoffs with uh, Into the Story and Drama Walk were. Yeah. And then you could build your deck in any number of the ways past that, like Ruin Crabs, Shark Typhoons, Luris, No Luris, however you really wanted to do it. There's a lot of ways to build rogues past that like core of 24 cards. Sure. I don't know what is the best way, and I haven't played enough rogues to come up with, like, here's the best build if you're expecting this. But I don't think you can go super wrong if you have access to the mill package for game one, the end of the story and drown in the lock, a solid plan for escape cards, and an ability to adjust the size of your deck when you don't want the one drops that mill your opponent. Like, that's the formula for you're gonna be okay like you've got to start and then you need to figure out kind of what your what your spice is what exactly is your counter spell suite how much are you negating stuff you know that sort of thing yeah and i think that's where the rogue decks has strength because there are a lot of different cards you can play we saw zach allen try a bunch of different cards that didn't look very good on camera but he did well in the tournament up to like he, he started mm-hmm. off 4-0 and then yeah. lost two in a row yeah, yeah, he was running uh, Fairy Vandal, which... Eh. I believe that was in the sideboard. Okay. Not, not a main deck inclusion. Okay, and is it Take Inventory? Frantic the... Inventory. Frantic Inventory. Yeah. Take okay. Inventory is the sorcery version That's of the, sorcery the same one. exact card. Okay, well, they should not have put the same word into it. Unless they were going like, to play off of accumulated knowledge with all of them and have the same like have knowledge or accumulated or something like that in all of them then maybe that would work but the fact that it's only in the new two is just gonna make me mess that up every single time yeah and it's they didn't how did that kindle was one of the cards in that cycle right kindle was the mm-hmm. original one in tempest yeah. and then accumulated knowledge came out a little later nemesis and I don't think any of the other ones had accumulated, did they? Or were they all accumulated, like, life or whatever, and we don't remember them because they were all garbage? No, no, they they didn't have the... Yeah, it, it's just weird that inventory is in both of these new ones. I, I, I don't know. I kinda, just, it's I, very easy for me to screw it up. I mean, I honestly like the name Take Inventory a lot. I think that was a mm-hmm. really good one. Yeah, I, and but then they, they put just... it on an unplayable version of the effect. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I have a regionals top eight with Take Inventory. <laughs> Do you really? Yeah, it was in standard. <laughs> what was that in? Uh, I played a blue-red thing in the ice deck. Okay. And Take Inventory was one of the... Because that was right when Spire Bluff Canal came out. Right. And uh, Take Inventory was like one of the ways to keep going yeah. against like the vehicle decks, which were everywhere. You just needed 
spells, and there's only so many spells that draw cards in Standard. Yeah, that was like the only one other than Glenar of Genius. Yeah. Anyways, as for this Standard, you know, there's a balance between the Rogues decks, the Yorion decks, and like kind of the Rakdos midrange decks is this like triangle of format churn, I feel like. Mm-hmm. This weekend, Rogues was the most heavily played, Yorion was second place, and then Rakdos Midrange actually had like a healthy representation, despite having clear weaknesses against the Yorion decks. I predict that that will change from week to week, and you kind of want to be on the right axis of the wheel. Uh, this weekend, Rakdos Midrange was actually a pretty good good place to be it had a great win percentage in our tournament i think it had a a solid win percentage overall the rogues decks just although they have tools i mean their their win rate against rakdos is not good if i find it on this chart well while you're looking i'll say i was actually surprised by rakdos like if you'd asked me last week uh what i expected to well rakdos would not have really been on that list because even though I did think it was favored against Rogues, I didn't know if Rogues would be that popular, and I thought it was disfavored enough against the various Yorion decks mm-hmm. that it wouldn't be a player, or a big player at least. But I was just wrong, I think, about the Yorion matchup. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it's not disfavored in some regards, uh, against Blue-White specifically, but Blue-White Yorion just seemed to do really badly against everything else. <laughs> so if if no one's really trying to pick up blue out yorion and everyone's moving to like the more vulnerable yorion decks like green white or even playing rogues rakdos picks up the shares there i feel like green white yorion is harder for rakdos than than blue white but maybe i'm i'm wrong about that i i've lost more match i i've played from the green white side and i have definitely mm -hmm. lost matches i feel like it's not that it's not a good matchup for Octos, but it's not like that bad. Okay. All right, sure, that's fair. Yeah, and I mean, I think that it is a matter of... Like, Rakdos Midrange is certainly disfavored to some extent against, like, pretty much all of the Orion decks. But with smart deck building and good play and good role assignment, like, you can shrink that gap a little bit. And the win rate against rogues is so massive, like looking at this chart here, confidence interval, 95% confidence interval stretches from 26% to 38% win rate of Demir rogues against Rakdos. So it's a pretty atrocious matchup any way you slice it. If that's 30% of the field, like you don't have to be great against the Yorion decks, which are only a chunk of the field. And then you have plans against all of the creature decks, which are kind of the rest of it. And, you know, that is a pretty reasonable solid positioning for a deck in a normal standard metagame that's not dominated by any single deck as you know a thing that you have to be capable of beating you don't have to be capable of beating anything in particular in standard right now yeah i think we've been spoiled a lot of time by these uber powerful cards that have been printed where you know sultai food with oka was favored against everything Wilderness Reclamation <laughs> with Om- with Uro was favored against everything. And so, like, people are just used to figuring out what the most powerful, best strategy is against everything else. And the reality is that's just frequently not where standard is. Yeah. You know, aside from the last year and a half, two years. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, just to give audience members sort of a a, a taste of how these play out... 
When Rakdos beats the Yorion decks, it's usually because you get a decent amount of tempo going and end the game before they can leverage their, like, vast stores of card advantage. Because they are going to card advantage you if you give them the time. But Rakdos is actually pretty good at dealing 2 damage here, 4 damage here, 3 damage here, until your opponent's at 0. Yeah, Robber the Rich or Magmatic Chandler, Bonecrusher Giant, Rankle, and Kroxa itself with a Liliana mm -hmm. burn plan if you need to. Like, it forces your opponent to start doing stuff. And some of these Wargon decks can't get on the table fast enough against removal spells or other interaction enough to offset the tempo of Rakdos on, when they're on their A game. You kind of want to... It's not like Yorion is disfavored there, but you do want to put them... If you're on the Rakdos side, you want to put Yorion on the back foot and then make sure they have to put their things on the board to catch up rather than to like keep a lead. Yeah, right. You don't want... Like, you want to punish them for having to take a turn to cast Omen of the Sea because you're attacking them on the next turn. Like, that's the place you, you really do need to be putting them. And I, I think that's a big reason that we've seen the adoption of Robber of the Rich over Magmatic Channeler. Magmatic Channeler is built to play a 9, 10, 11 turn game and just, like, keep you going and keep you drawing the right cards. It, it's really good on when you untap with it on turn three, it helps you make the right plays from there, but it really shines when you like keep going for a while. Uh, Robber of the rich, a less powerful card for going long, but if you really don't want to go long and you just want to get those points in so that, you know, you can get your opponent down to the point where a couple of croaks of triggers is enough to end it. And, you know, maybe get a card out of the deal. I don't know that anybody has ever actually cast a card off of Robber of the Rich. Like, that sounds like a myth to me. But, uh, you know, mythic 2-mana two 2-2 two -two haste reach is fine sometimes. Yeah, it's it's the aggressive version. I know that Kellen, who top-baited with Red Black in the Manager's Tournament, mm -hmm. said that he was not impressed with Robber. Like, it was just a fine card for him. Yeah, uh, but he wanted to try out Skyclave Shade instead because it was more aggressive than Magmatic Chandler and not Robert the Rich, which he had just played. So that mm -hmm. that's another two drop you can consider in your aggressive two drop suite. Yeah, and most of the red black lists that I've seen do have some of those in the sideboard still. It definitely suffers from just not being resilient against Glass Casket and Skyclave Apparition. Like that that interaction hurts quite a bit. Yeah, it, it does. But you can't beat everything. No, certainly not. And, you know, those two cards are going to be good against your deck regardless of what you do. I don't know that there's any way to, like, insulate yourself from it. So the more you can force them to use those, the more possible it is that your Kroxa survives. And to answer your question about if anyone's ever seen a Rob of the Rich cast anything, the very last time I saw the Rob of the Rich draw a card or cast anything was in a historic... In the tournament we covered, where it cast a Teferi Hero of Dominaria. <laughs> yeah, okay, well that's very <laughs> With impressive. With some Land Elves, because it was a Gruul deck. Yeah. It does benefit if you have some other rogues in your deck, particularly Rankle. Like, you may be able to get that card out of it later. Like, if you got an Elspeth Conqueror's Death off of your Robber of the Rich or something like that. Although, untapping with Rankle is usually a sign that you're doing just fine. Yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're in... Good shape if you're untapping with Rankle. Yeah. Overall, this standard, 
there have not been any decks out of the main several decks that if somebody showed up with it, I'd be like, yeah, that's that's an embarrassing choice. You shouldn't have done that. So, you know, there's some weekends, there's going to be some weekends that, that some decks are really not great choices. And we're definitely seeing like, you know, Demir Rogues was a victim of its own heavy play, basically, and it its win percentage trended down for this weekend. And it was pretty heavily targeted by most of the decks that people showed up with. Like, yeah, there was a bunch of Azorius Yorion, which didn't do great against it. But people generally had plans against it, even if they were playing decks that, that Rogues was good against. You can tell it's on people's minds because everyone has a bunch of escape cards in their sideboard. I even saw yeah. Glimpse of Freedom this weekend, which is a card draw, a very small ball card draw spell that has escape. Yeah, but that card rules against Rogues. Yeah. Rogues has a hard time beating that card. I, I saw it get cling to dusted. Like, you, you, you're going to have to do something about it. Yeah. The awkward thing is the non-creature escape cards, when they cling to dusted, they get to draw a card. So that feels a little worse. Uh, I think generally, if you can run the creature ones, like, they are better. It, at least in Glimpse of uh, Freedom's favor, it is an instant. So mm-hmm. you can, it does make it, like, a little awkward sometimes to cling. Yeah, true. It ends up just being you have to do it at the end of your turn a lot when they, your opponent casts it and doesn't have enough mana to escape it or flashback it or mm-hmm. enough cards in graveyard to escape it again. Then you cling it. Uh, yeah. But it does have that you can definitely mess it up factor. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So I don't know how much meta stuff we want to talk about since that changes every hour, like the exact <laughs> composition. Uh, one thing that I do want to talk about is just the individual card choices from sort of different versions of these main archetypes. But yeah, before we do card choices, which we can do, I just want to like briefly talk about Gruul. Okay. Which had like a pretty good weekend this weekend. Yeah. Like, a lot of people showed up and I wasn't able to watch any of the MPL games because it was covering mm-hmm. a tournament. I'm sure you didn't have that much opportunity either. No, I, th- that was definitely a big cost of running the tournament this weekend as I did not. And, and we should talk about the NPL before we talk about and, and the Rivals weekend before we talk about the individual card choice things. Um, but yeah, definitely a big cost was that I didn't get to watch as much of that this weekend as I ideally would have. And I, I saw that Gruel actually had like a pretty good weekend. It was doing well against most of the top decks. Yeah, I'm not surprised. I... I I think on our podcast and then I immediately like two days later went on uh, Zach's podcast and I like said the same thing both times. like Gruul is just good. It's just a good deck and it exploits like a lot of the things that are important in this format, including grinding value and like r- the way rogues tries to trade for like stuff on the stack basically. And, and tries to get on board with just, like, little itty-bitty things in order to turn on its cards. Like, Gruul is great at punishing a lot of the things that this format is about. Yeah, I think Gruul is a really good big aggro deck. Like, mm-hmm. it's got the card advantage element. It's got the, you know, can put a really quick clock on the element. And it's got the Embercleave view down style as well. Yeah. Uh, which all adds up to being, like, a pretty versatile deck and pretty hard to attack from a couple different angles mm-hmm. yep the the like amalgamation of being an innkeeper deck and being an aggressive enough deck with like haste guys and then can like everything can carry an ember cleave like 
you have to be specific about attacking this deck, and most of the Yorion decks are tilted towards other things right now. And I, I, I was never really that low on Gruul in the first place. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to make sure to give it its due among yeah. us talking about like rogues and Yorion and Kroxa. Yeah. No, I, I think that like it's outside of that like very clear rock paper scissors trio, but it's kind of gun. Like it, it is at times. It's definitely gun. Like you can there. There's times when like all three of those decks are built to be like forty five percent ish decks against Gruul because they're thinking about each other so much. Yeah, and that's like a good place to be. Like a lot yeah. of the time, a lot of the tournaments I've played, I've played the fourth deck that no one was really thinking about. Yep. Because everyone was just inbreeding against each other. Yeah, and I think after this weekend, like there was plenty of Gruel played this weekend, and it also did quite well. I think in MPL league play, like Gruel at one point was like 22 and 2 or something like that. <laughs> Gruel smashes. And poor Autumn registered Team of Ramp and their pod was pretty much entirely gruel or actually entirely gruel or something like that yeah there were there were all but one gruel deck Ugh. i don't remember what the other one was yeah so that's rough that's not ideal yeah that's man the ramp decks are like the decks too where you you make a call it's a matchup lottery kind of deck and you get it wrong you feel terrible yeah the I, I in our rock paper scissors gun world the the ramp decks are like like elephant troops or something like that and it's just like it turns out that some of these matchups you have to go through a mountain pass to get to your opponent yeah exactly <laughs> i i do like and and we I, I think that we can really get into this in our individual card choice discussion because i am like really high on the things that Tiago Saparito did to his deck to adapt it to the stuff that he was going to play against. And I think he got absolutely rewarded for his individual card choices there. Yeah. Do you want to jump into that now? Or do you want to like talk about rivals more? Cause I think, you know, rivals tags into what we've, we've had been saying. Yeah. I think that, yeah. Why don't we just talk about, I mean, I just want to give kudos where, where they are due. Like I criticize wizards and their, organized play choices a lot i think deservedly so I, I i think that they deserve a lot of criticism this this thing was a clear learning from mistakes sort of thing league play last year was atrocious like nobody watched it at all it was not live it didn't have like it didn't have commentary like i don't even know how they did it but like, they managed to make, like, every choice to make it unwatchable. And, like, players couldn't stream their matches because it wasn't live and they couldn't spoil the results to the, like, 10 people who were going to actually watch the after-the-fact stream. Just an absolutely atrocious undertaking. This one, all live, let the players stream their matches. You can watch the mainstream. You can watch your favorite players' streams, you know, all of the top streams during the rivals and MPL league play, just like ma- magic Twitch was just littered with streams of that tournament or whatever it is, the, the weekend play. And we were just sort of saturated with it. And I think that it r- worked really well and that's how it should be. 
Yeah, I, I think Wizards actually did a really good job letting players finally stream their matches. I don't know what they had against it before, but I'm glad that's over. Because Well, I don't know that it is over. <sighs> they may still not be allowed to stream their matches in the tournaments. And I don't know what their rules are there, because that might be a different thing. Hopefully they are. I think it's very stupid to not let players stream their matches. I, I do too. Because like one of the cool things... It, okay, so if this were a league play... With commentary, but the players couldn't stream. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just probably not going to watch it most weekends. Yeah. Because the commentary team from Wizards is fine, but can be hit or miss sometimes. Mm-hmm. So, but like this weekend, I wasn't able to watch because of Mana Traders. But I'm highly likely to tune in to like any random player I actually want to see gameplay from, especially if there's a, like a specific matchup I'm looking for. I can just look around streams to see who's playing that matchup and then watch it. Right. Yeah. Like that's one thing. Like when we're covering a tournament, we can only put so many matches on about two matches around. So that means in a nine round tournament, we get to put 18 total matches on during Swiss and then some top eight matches. There's hundreds and hundreds of matches that happen in any given tournament. And if you let your players stream them, then player like viewers get to choose what they want to watch. And there's just a lot more content out there and a lot more entertainment to be had. So I think that it's just a huge win. And I was really glad to see how they pulled it off this weekend. Super cool. Yeah, I hope they... I, I really hope they continue it with the mythic championships or players tour or whatever they're not called that they're like set oh come something. on i can't keep it up set set the, battle set, set championships or something like zendikar rising championship or something like that is the next one okay yeah they're named after the sets which is good i think they should be yes. tied to sets although it's going to be long after the set release so that like reduces some of the natural hype for that sort of thing yeah the zendikar rising championship i hope they let the players stream i really do yeah same i think it's huge especially since it's like kind of throwing people a bone while all the covid stuff is happening and Mm -hmm. after you know years later when covid's done and we can have paper tournaments back and even arena tournaments that are under the rosette's umbrella like then you can pull streaming back if you like think it's important to you because you know whatever i don't know i thought see it's just dumb if your concern is like that the player streams are going to take away from the audience for the mainstream then that's just like fundamentally misunderstanding the value of these things to the brand of magic like magic shouldn't care how many people are watching the magic stream they should care how many people are watching the magic the gathering tab on twitch like it's all the same so hopefully that's not a thing that they're concerned about at all it's like the uh, whoever is in charge of numbers presenting to Hasbro is like, we need the magic stream to be big. Right. And that's not really how it works. Yeah. And that led to the like embedding on curse thing and stuff like that. Yeah. Anyway, though. Yeah. Anyway. So I want to talk about individual card choices that make versions of these decks not that different like they still play out about the same but they do adjust like how you can approach different matchups so we talked about a little bit about magmatic channeler versus robber of the rich in rectos Uh, i think generally you want the robber of the rich if you are playing more matchups where 
eking out those points of damage and trying to end the game before they get their big ol' engines online is, like, part of the plan. And that's generally for the Yorion decks. But, you know, like, Kellen did just fine in our tournament and definitely beat some Yorion decks in a Magmatic Channeler version of the deck. But we saw when he played that he did still leverage the deck to try to deal damage early on and then, like, end the game with Kroxa triggers and attacking with Bone Crusher Giants and stuff like that. Kellen was playing Robert the Rich. Oh, he was playing Robert the Rich. Yes. Wait, who was playing Channeler? I believe our was doing well. second place person was playing Channeler. Oh, okay, okay. Leo? Yes, okay. He was playing Channelers. Gotcha, Which, yeah. okay. honestly didn't seem super impressive when I saw him on the battlefield, but they were mm-hmm. a lot of Yorion matchups. Yeah. So... I guess that is kind of, I, I mean, it's not too much more complicated than that. If you're trying to do real, if you're trying to adjust your deck to gain some percentage points against Yorion, then Robber is probably a little bit better. Uh, if you're, if you believe you're equipped to play longer games against the decks in the field that you have to play longer games against, then Channeler is fine. Particularly like in the mirror, I think Channeler is a lot more important than Robber. It feels your croaks is way better and, and that's what matters a lot of the time. And sometimes you get really lucky with Timurat Calls of the Dead, and your Magmatic Channeler is just a 4-4. Like, really early. <laughs> yeah, then you feel really good about that choice. And it's not great on its face value, because it dies to uh, Blood Chief's Thirst and Bone Crusher Giant traits for it. Mm-hmm. But it allows you to, like, leverage it being a 4-4 earlier than intended to, like, use your removal for um, to push damage in early. And your life tool does mm-hmm. really matter a lot in that matchup. It does. It, it becomes kind of the most important resource around turn six or seven or so. Especially with all these Lilianas people are playing now. Yeah, you just end up with this, like, we're each taking three to six damage a turn, and there's nothing we can do about that happening situations. Yeah, it feels like there, when Liliana is involved in a game, it's just got, like, a really hard timer on it. Where it yes. It's just time to go. Yeah, unless she dies immediately, yeah, then it's just, right, like a ticking sort of end of game notice. We also saw a pretty big and kind of new card choice, uh, Tiago Saparito, who got to the top four of our tournament with Teamer Ramp, and his payoffs, he moved away from the Terror of the Peak sort of package for Genesis Ultimatum, was still playing Quad Genesis Ultimatum, but he was just playing four Ugins and a bunch of Shark Typhoons as his payoffs. Yeah, this is pretty cool. I, I want to point out another card choice, which I think is even better than those, mm-hmm. uh, which is Wolf Willow Haven instead of Lotus Cobra. Oh, sure, yeah. Because I, I mentioned this, maybe not on the podcast, but definitely on the stream, where Lotus Cobra is just not that great in the ramp deck. The old Lotus Cobra decks had real fetch lands, so you could have 5 mana on turn 3 pretty easily, and 4 mana on 6, mm-hmm. or 6 mana on 4. Uh, you can still do the turn 4 thing, but your turn 3, you can't convert 5 mana into anything, because Fabled Passage doesn't even work, really, with Lotus Cobra. It still only gives you 4 mana. Right. It just upgrades it to an untapped land on that turn, basically. And you're not really trying to go from 2 to 4, you really want to go to two to five or from three to six. Those are like mm-hmm. your breakpoints. 
And the worst thing about Lotus Cobra is it just dies, and you you might need it a lot, especially a lot of the times when you're setting up like a Lotus Cobra cultivate into something else turn or fertile footsteps. And, and none of your other stuff dies. Like Blood Chief's Thirst and Stomp are not turned on against your deck. Glass Casket's not turned on against your deck until you give them that by playing a Lotus Cobra on turn two. I've actually played so many games where uh, my opponent's on the play, and then I have a Lotus Cobra on my turn two. <laughs> Or I could just play a tap land and not play the Lotus Cobra. And not Cobra. get stomped. Yeah. And I play the tap land and they stomp my face. And I'm like, whew, I wish I had Wolf Willow Haven in my hand. <laughs> Probably should update my deck list. Yeah. I That makes perfect sense to me. I, I think that that is a huge difference. I can understand some of the Lotus Cobra choice in other versions of the deck if you're playing more combo-y with your genesis ultimatum and you have terror of the peaks and you might want to you know cast another spell out of your hand the turn that you genesis ultimatum lotus cobra lets you do that i don't know how important that is ever but it's definitely less important in the shark typhoon ugin version of the ramp deck i think the and we'll talk about the shark typhoon ugin things soon i promise but yes. the, the Lotus Corporal Genesis Ultimatum thing, I think, is vastly overrated. Mm-hmm. I've actually played a lot of the ramp deck because, I don't know, I just really like casting Genesis Ultimatum. <laughs> <laughs> but I've casted in like a lot of different configurations. And the Lotus Cobra, Terror the Peaks, putting lands into play with Genesis Ultimatum to cast another spell. It's not like it never comes up. It can. Mm-hmm. But it's rarely going to turn the game one way or the other. Like It, it just doesn't yeah. matter that much. Like sometimes, right. oftentimes, you'll put in a land or two and cast like a fertile footsteps. It's something that like doesn't really matter, but it lets you do it, you know? Way more games are going to get decided by your two drop ramp spell getting hit by Blood Chief's Thirst. Yeah, exactly. Or, or with Terror of the Peaks, because I actually do really like Terror of the Peaks. I, I'll talk about this later. Mm-hmm. But the Terror of the Peaks plan by itself just presents such a good clock that Lotus Cover doesn't really add to anything other than just mm-hmm. two damage, which... Hey, yeah, you can't turn down a shock. Can't turn down a shock. But, you know, there's other shocks we're playing. <laughs> that's what that's what good with Glass Bowl Mimic. Glass Bowl Mimics were very good in uh, Terror of the Peaks versions, because you can get the mana... Like, you, you end up with ten mana a lot in these ramp decks, so you can mm-hmm. typically cast Genesis Ultimatum and then a Glass Bowl Mimic to copy the... The one you drew from Genesis Ultimatum but can't pull, right. put into the battle. You gotta put it in your hand, but yes. Yeah, do not make that mistake if you're playing on Arena. If you're putting a bunch of creatures into play with Genesis Ultimatum, and one of them is a Glass Pool Mimic, you, you want to keep that one in your hand. Because if you yeah, put it into play, it, it can't copy anything comes that comes yeah. along with it. Can you put it into play as the Glass Pool... Or yeah, of course you can put it into play as the Glass Pool Mimic side. That's the front side of the card, yeah. So, But yes, yeah, so you can't copy anything that comes into play at the same time. It's so like if you collected company into a phantasmal image and something else, you ha- you can only copy something that's already on the battlefield. Yeah, and Glass Pool Mimic is even worse at that because it only copies your stuff and your ramp deck, so you usually don't have anything in play. Right. <laughs> uh, but yes. as for... Like the payoffs in Tiago's deck. He played four ultimatums, four Ugans, and three Shark Typhoons in the main deck. With another one on the board, I believe. Maybe he played all Honestly, four. Honestly, it, se- it seemed like... And we mostly watched him in matchups where Typhoon was particularly good. But it really felt like that four Shark Typhoon should have been in the main deck. But that that, that was a really cool innovation. Like, I mm-hmm. like the call 
where Ugin and Shark Typhoon are really, really good right now. Like, Ugin's very good against the Orion decks. Shark Typhoon's really good against that deck and uh, Rogues. Yep. Which the Ram deck does struggle against. So it was cool to see the Genesis Ultimate is being used as more card advantage or putting into play like an impossible deal with permanent rather than like a combo-esque Terror of the Peaks style deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because Shark Typhoon is just so nuts against blue decks. You don't need to like one-shot your opponent in order to beat their grindiness. Like that was really a concern in like the Omnath days. But the grindiness of these Yorion decks, like you beat them by putting an Ugin into play or by putting an Ugin and a Shark Typhoon into play, like, that's plenty. That's more than enough. Especially given that your Genesis Ultimatum also drew additional cards. Like, you undo all of the work that they did. Yeah, and you... One of the things I didn't like... There's, like, a lot of good things you can say about Shark Typhoon. Especially mm-hmm. since, like, a lot of the play patterns I see with it in the ramp decks are, you know, make a 9-9 Shark at the end of your turn on turn 6, and then attack you with it. Yes. That's, that's... Yeah, it's just, like, a really real threat... And it is immune to Skyclave Apparition and Elspeth Conquer's death, despite being just gigantic. And you and no one is going to keep in Glass Casket against Tiago because he doesn't have any Cobras in his deck and right. takes out the Bone Crusher Giants in blue matchups like he usually should. Right, and nobody's playing any Brazen Borrowers, which is Shark Typhoon's nemesis. So Yeah, so hopefully we see an uptick in Brazen Borrowers. That would be nice. That card is criminally underplayed right now for a deck, which is, you know, Rogues is one of the more popular decks. Yeah. It is kind of medium in Rogues. It doesn't quite, like... It is good against a lot of the stuff that is good against Rogues. It's so it's that... really medium in Rogues, and it doesn't really contribute to the game plan until right. you're dying to a Shark Token. Yes. And then you're like, or oh, there's... <laughs> Or there's a Doom Foretold, and, like, if you had Brazen Borrower, you could, like, tempo through it, but since you don't, you just kind of die to it. it. The the cool play of Brazen Borrower with Doom Foretold is, like, bouncing their non-Doom Foretold permanent. And then making him sack the Doom Foretold, that's always been really nice. Sure. But even, like, a lot of times, Lou and I have cast Doom Foretold, like, if they have just end of turn Brazen Borrower to bounce it, and I've traded four mana for two, it, like, that's enough that I'm I'm just, like, on the back foot too much from there and can't get, a, can't get into the game. But one of the weaknesses, I think, of Tiago's build was the Genesis Ultimatum just, like, not that very good in his deck mm-hmm. if it didn't put into play like we saw one game tiago played where his opener was like a million ugans yeah <laughs> uh he had two ugans and two genesis ultimatums in an opener or uh, in the top seven or nine eight cards or something and then drew a third ugan and then these genesis ultimatums were like not hitting anything they would just hit like wolfalo havens and some lands and maybe a bone crusher giant and that's like a really really underwhelming genesis ultimatum Sure. Yeah, I mean, it makes your Bonecrusher Giant hits a little worse when they don't come with damage from Terror of the Peaks. Like, it, it is definitely a little underwhelming. I do think, if I'm remembering correctly, there was one turn where he, like, could have cast two Genesis Ultimatums and didn't. And, like, the like the game would have probably gone his way if he had done that. So Yeah, that he misclicked a Wolf Willow Haven land and popped the right. Wolf Willow Haven. Right, right, right. A really unfortunate misclick, yeah. A, a good proponent there to not float your mana before casting your spells right, is to click, it. click your stuff before tapping your mana. Because Magic Online, if you floated a bunch of mana and you click something, it'll just put it into play or cast it. Yeah, I think... Well, and I guess it doesn't really matter 
I, I think that's probably a habit of casting an ultimatum and trying to make sure you're using the correct lands to cast it. But it actually doesn't matter at all in that deck because there's no actual duels. It's all fabled passages and pathways. Yeah. So if you cast an ultimatum, there's really only one way of doing it. It's tapping three of your lands that are effectively islands, two of your lands that are effectively forests, and two of your lands that are effectively mountains. And Ketria so Triumph as a wild card. Right. <laughs> and it won't use the Ketria Triumph if you have other options. So Yeah, Oof, that was rough. Yeah, that was rough. But yeah, just like the the Genesis Ultimates of Tiago's build are really mediocre. They're like kind of just digging for Ugin, I felt like. Mm-hmm. Which is good if Ugin's good. But one of the things I really like about Terror of the Peaks is that it makes your medium Genesis Ultimatums into good Genesis Ultimatums. Because Terror of the Peaks is sure. such a good threat. And every creature, even mediocre creatures like Bonecrusher Giant out of a ramp deck, just add a like a big chunk to your clock. Yeah, I mean, I I see what you're saying, and I agree with you there. But my feeling is mostly like I want to salvage the games where Genesis Ultimatum is really hard to get done for whatever reason, particularly against rogues. I don't know. I just love Shark Typhoon is all. So. Oh, I think the inclusion of Shark Typhoon is really good. Don't get me wrong there. I just would prefer to see probably a little fewer Ugins than four. And like, personally, I, I only playing two Ugins and I'm playing a bunch of Terror of the Peaks. Cause I think that mm. is more well-rounded and I have shark okay. typhoons in the board, but I could definitely see putting like a couple in the main deck if I wanted to. Yeah. I, it depends on what your metagame call for the, the day is right. Mm-hmm. Like if you think you're going to play against Azor- play against Yorion a lot, and that's the reason that you're playing the deck like, you kind of want all the Ugins you can possibly get in there. Yeah, for sure. Ugin's but, unbeatable if it's in play against his Yorion decks. But you can also sideboard an Ugin or two. I just, I definitely want four in my 75, because my post board has got to have four Ugins in it. Against the Yorion decks? Yeah, sure. Some of the other individual card choices that I have found interesting in looking at different lists. Different compositions of spell lands in the Rakdos decks... Uh, in particular, I saw PV's list, which had no spike field hazards and three uh, Palaka predations and three Hagra maulings, just going really hard on the black spell lands, including like Palaka predation, which I guess is a nod to the Yorion decks and trying to take some of their more dangerous stuff, but I don't like that card. <laughs> well, it's a really, really bad card discard spell right yeah like the only i've only seen it being cast once as opposed to being played as a land uh and the person missed with it <laughs> Ugh. which is like really rough yeah especially since it was a, a red black deck right so they were just trying to get any card out of their opponent's hand and it was like an island and a two drop and so it Ugh. missed and now liliana and Groxa couldn't deal damage <laughs> and it was just very right. awkward on like several fronts i think the idea must be like, this can be a card that absorbs a Skyclave Apparition, you know? I'm I'm willing to pay three mana at times to clear the Skyclave Apparitions out of their hand and then escape my Kroxa next turn. Uh, the What it says to me is less that Polaka Predation is, like, worth playing, because I think it generally isn't. Mm-hmm. But it is more that the black mana is a breaking point and Spike Field Hazard is probably not very effective right now. Yeah, I, I think that that is definitely true. 
Uh, in particular, because of the mythic spell lands, uh, Shatter Skull Smashing is a lot better in the deck than Agadim's Awakening, which kind of yeah. doesn't do anything. Yeah, Agadim's so Awakening's you... not very good in Rakdos. <laughs> right. So you're, you're, you're kind of tilted towards the red spell lands anyways, which makes you want to tilt your other spell lands towards black if you can. Spikefield Hazard, in a world where Lotus Cobra is not really being played, the only the main target for it is Edgewall Innkeeper now. And I, you just ha- kind of have to, like, think about how much you're going to play against Gruul and what exactly is your game plan against them, how often... I mean, if I have a Spikefield Hazard and they have an Edgewall Innkeeper, then obviously I want to do that. But I also have found a lot of times post-board in that matchup, like you want to set up a turn where you're extinction eventing on odd and getting their stuff and kind of undoing the, the things that they did. So post-board, it's not always as pressing to kill the Edgewall Innkeeper. So I, I wonder if PV has come to some of the same conclusions about that matchup. And I do like Hagramalling as a card, like a spell land. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like a four mana murder is fine on a spell land because Rakdos really uses the inherent card advantage in the double face lands where you can you know they're double face so you can choose how you want to play them uh, Rakdos yeah. doesn't have a lot of overt card selection but it does have like that deck building selection in the double face lands yeah I think that it was during uh, our tournament I think that you were not on this game but I believe we saw one of our players cast a Hagramalling in response to a Fabled Passage that would have gotten his opponent's first basic land. I, <laughs> so it was like, oh shoot, I gotta use this right now. I did not see that. I would have definitely laughed at it. <laughs> it was good. It was a good moment. It's the perfect play. <laughs> so let's see. Uh, some other choices. And, you know, this is like a really broad concept this isn't just a do i play robber of the rich or do i play magmatic channeler but there is a very specific choice you have to make when you're registering yorion which is whether or not you're going to play a doom foretold version of that deck and you know there's abzan versions there's esper versions orzov straight orzov hasn't really popped up you don't really have the twos to support that generally but Doom Foretold is an option for Yorion. It hasn't been the most popular option, but it's definitely out there. And I'm curious if you have thoughts on like why you would or wouldn't want to play a Doom Foretold version of the deck. So I have played... I've dabbled a little bit in Abzan Yorion, which is a Doom Foretold or Yorion deck. And I've mostly come to the conclusion that I have no idea why you would want a doom foretold version as opposed to the regular one that's not like they're not sufficiently different enough because they are it's just it it doesn't seem like you're gaining a sizable advantage from a doom foretold version and sometimes you your doom portals don't do anything at all Mm -hmm. but at the same time it is nice to have that like sideways juke engine where you're like a bunch of non-creature permanents or golden egg trail of crumbs stuff and your doom foretold doesn't really hurt you at all and it's good against your opponent. That's nice too, but you know you give up some stuff playing that. So I haven't really figured it out yet, personally. Yeah, the main advantage that I think that I've seen from Doom Foretold being in decks is it like weirdly makes you better against rogues, which you just like wouldn't think that this four mana permanent sorcery speed permanent would do that. 
but if you ever resolve Doom Foretold against rogues, you probably win, basically. Yeah, it gets and... all their creatures up. They can't deal with it. There's no brazen borrowers, like you said. Right. The the turn sequence that I have found to be just like disgusting against them is turn three Elspeth's Nightmare, turn four Doom Foretold. Uh, if you resolve the Elspeth's Nightmare, then you're going to resolve the Doom Foretold because you get their duress out of it, and you at least have perfect information of whether or not to cast the Doom Foretold. If they counter the Elspeth's Nightmare, they probably can't counter the Doom Foretold. It's, like, not super likely. They don't have a ton of stuff to be doing that with, like, just, like, turn after turn. Uh, so, like, that sequence is the best way to buy yourself percentage points in the Rogues matchup as a Yorion deck, I think. Or at least buys you the most. I don't know if it's the best way to do it. So I think that's why you would want to play Doom Foretold. I don't know if that is enough to make you do it, given that, like, you are making some sacrifices to other matchups. I know that, like, you know, I heard Corey Baumeister on a podcast talking, on, on the Bash Bros podcast, talking about how he actually likes Doom Foretold against the other Yorion decks because it keeps their boards clean and makes their Yorions bad. Which I get, but also sometimes it's like, I have a Doom Foretold in my hand and you have two Omen of the Season and Omen of the Sun in play. And just like, yeah, I can clean them up, but I'm also paying four mana to not do anything at all here. I've I've also encountered the fact that it's a four mana sorcery play, which is a little punishing sometimes. Like even against rogues, if you don't have the Elspeth's Nightmare, mm-hmm. you have to like come to a turn where you're saying, hmm, am I really going to play this four mana sorcery against my opponent's four open mana? right and that that's a rough call to make yeah it definitely is and and right like that it does have we even though it is very good against rogues when you make it work which you tilt your deck towards doing when you get a kind of clunky draw it can definitely be part of the clunkiness of the draw so and there's there's also games against yorian mirrors where both players are playing out enchantments or random permanents and Doom Patrol just eats both players' stuff up, mm-hmm. which means that if they have a better draw than you, they're going to win <laughs> because you're right. also cleaning your own stuff up. Like, it yeah, doesn't I mean, leverage anything like that. That's exactly what I'm saying there. I, I, I agree completely. Like, I while sometimes it can be good at stopping the other Yorian deck from going nuts with Yorian, like, I don't... There's also a lot of games where it's just bad because they're not spending resources to absorb Doom Foretold triggers. Like, you spent a card to do this, and you're getting omens with it. And meanwhile, like... And, and th- this is also not mentioning the fact that it gets targeted by both Skyclave Apparition and Elspeth Conquers Death. And those are, like... If you're on the draw and they just respond to Doom Foretold by sacrificing an omen and playing an Elspeth Conquers Death... Like, you didn't really clean up their board because now they have an Elspeth Conquer's death to blink, so... That said, after being a like pretty negative towards Doom Foretold for the last minute, if I play any Yorion deck, it's going to be a Doom Foretold one. Because I mm-hmm. think the like the pay the returns, the payoffs, are really high for Yorion-style decks. Like, more so mm-hmm. than the other Yorion decks. And I also just like prefer playing it. Yeah, I also do. The play pattern... The play patterns of the Doom Foretold decks, I like more. I like the way that it kind of shrinks the game down around that in in some ways. And I I just, like, appreciate the way that it pulls resources into a black hole and forces players to make decisions around it. 
so I I like Doom Foretold a lot. I do too. I can't say that it's the right way to do it. Yeah, I think it's actually just one of my favorite white black cards in Magic. Mm -hmm. It's like in my cube. Like I really like that card. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty into casting it for sure. So one thing that we've seen, an adaptation that several people have done with their Rakdos decks is just main decking two Oxavagonuses now. Yep, love it. <laughs> yep, pretty into it. I love Oxavagonus. Very, Oxlagonis. very good in the mirror and helps you keep up from turns like, you know, six to eight with the Yorion decks. If you start going way past that, then you might like lose the advantages you've gotten, but it, it gives you game there. It, it lets you draw up, or it's like Bedlam Reveler out of the Prowess decks a long time mm -hmm. ago, where it gives you just, like, the cards you need to f close the game out. And you're not yeah. planning on, like, going Ox and Ox and Ox. Because right. the Yorian decks are going to be able to beat that. But one Ox in to finish the game before they can recover, a sound strategy. Mm -hmm. Yep. And it makes your Timurit Calls the Deads a little less likely to be just like completely embarrassing things. Timoret sounds the horn and no one comes. <laughs> yeah. Even if you never make a zombie out of it, if you put in the fuel for an ox of Agonis or, and hopefully also an ox of Agonis, then it's fine. The, the cost you're paying is that obviously this card is bad against the aggressive decks. That's, that certainly is a cost, but it is pretty good when you're doing any sort of grinding and it helps lock up that game one against rogues, which is really important. You can't afford to just sort of like accidentally lose the game one because they do have post-board plans against you and they can beat you post-board. If they only need to win one of the post-board games, then the matchup's not not nearly as tilted in your favor anymore. When when you're pre-board games, Ox is like fine in most matchups. It's just great and rogues against rogues. Yeah, they can't, they just can't beat it game one if they put a, an Ox into your graveyard. Costs two mana to escape. And it gets eight cards. That's the magic road yeah. number. <laughs> yeah. Card is not, just not beatable. Well, I mean, in that I, I saw Zach Allen get stranded with, maybe it wasn't Zach, but uh, a rogues player in our tournament get stranded with two into the stories in their hand because their opponent had just escaped. I think it was actually Glimpse of Freedom a couple times, which is mm -hmm. 10 cards. You only did that once for Ox. And it also, if you can lock out your opponent's end of the story in rogues, it's a huge deal. They can't cast that card. It's seven mana. <laughs> Right. And, and the fact that it only costs two to escape makes it impossible for them to, like, get a tempo advantage against that. Like, sometimes you'll escape Kroxa and they'll lull mages domination it, and you'll be like, shoot, that actually didn't work out very well for me. Ox does not have that weakness. Yeah, and and it's impossible to lull mages dominance. <laughs> well, yeah, because you took eight cards out of your graveyard, so they're not getting the discount anymore, probably. Yeah, yeah. it's an eight mana card. All right. Crab or no crab and rogues? What do you think? <sighs> I wish I had some rogues games under my belts, but I'm pretty confident that we want no crabs. I'm anti-crab. Yeah. It's just too binary of a card in a deck that's like relatively flexible. Yeah. I I know I, I agree, and I do think it's important to be able to take out like basically all of your mill package when you want to do that and if you have crabs in your deck that becomes borderline impossible but it does make a wider variety of opening hands not only keepable but actively good and it is very very good against the yorian decks it is it is 
So I don't really, honestly don't know. I, I, I don't have an answer to this question either. Have you, yeah, I, I, I don't know. It's honestly something I would need a lot more games to determine. And I have not put the time into rogues. Mm-hmm. But have you seen the mono blue corridor monitor Nyx Lotus deck? That I'm not I'm not willing to play Nyx Lotus in a Skyclave Apparition Elspeth Conquers Death format. Okay, look, this has put Calcano into like top 100 mythic. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I need to find the deck list. It's on his Twitter. I was looking at it earlier. It was a deck I saw and immediately imported into Magic Arena, and I've not yet played a game with it. <laughs> But I think you'll be unhappy when you do. Oh, That's certainly. I will certainly be unhappy. But maybe I'll get to do the cool thing because it is essentially, I'm going to try and find it here. So it's a mono blue deck. It's just Teferi's Tutelage Ruin Crab deck. So it's mm-hmm. a mill deck. Yep. And it puts permanents on the board so you can use Arcanist Owl and Nyxalotus to fuel like a Gadwick the Wizened and then sure. try to draw your deck with Into the Story and Seagate Restoration. <laughs> and you can win with Thassa's Oracle. Mm-hmm. So it's a really cute deck. Yeah. And the Ruin Crabs are not very good in this deck, I would imagine. So it's mm-hmm. hard for me to imagine like why they're there. <laughs> i couldn't tell you and that's kind of how i feel about rogues crab and rogues like Mm -hmm. i can i understand that it's a good enabler for the stuff but unless you're actually killing them with mill a large percentage of the time the crabs don't do that much unless you're drawing like the drown the locks really early or into the story on turn four every time which doesn't always happen right right I mean, it's also a way to get some amount of graveyard refilling if they escape a card once and then you get to cling it and then you need to put some more cards in their graveyard. Like, Crab is the best recurring way of doing that. So I I think this is a question that requires me to actively like play a lot more games with rogues to have a comfortable answer. Yeah, I think so too. But look how sweet this model blue deck is. It's very sweet. And I do appreciate that it's only a two Nyx Lotus deck. You can't lean on that card. Your, your deck can't be built around that card right now. Well, if this card didn't come into play tapped for some reason, it'd probably be fine. If this card didn't come into play tapped, it would probably be bonkers. Yep, I'm fine with that. <laughs> anyway, enough of nonsense decks. What, a, yep. what about um, 60 card Yorian decks or 80 card Yorian decks? So I think that the easiest line to draw is that it makes sense for the food-based Yorion decks to be 60 cards because the food package is so teeny tiny these days, you can't make it work in 80 cards. If your food package is literally just Goose, Trail of Crumbs, Wicked Wolf, then you can't add 20 cards to your deck and have those cards work together. Especially Wicked Wolf. Like, you just can't even play that card if you have 80 well it doesn't make food <laughs> yeah the uh the canister abzan deck was an 80 card gilded goose wicked wolf no trail of crumbs deck <laughs> so nope Not some people might disagree with you and dotha triumph and dotha triumph and dotha triumph gingerbread cabin wicked wolf Whew. Whew. spicy yeah 
Yeah, so that's the easy answer there. I'm wondering if... I mean, certainly if you're planning on playing very long games, then you hugely benefit from that free card, no matter how expensive it is. Once the games are collapsed down a little bit, and, like, I think that probably the Yorion decks playing against... If you're going to play against Rakdos a lot, you would rather be a more focused deck that's all, you know, your best cards, and you have a better chance of drawing Yorion and not having to pay the mana for it, because you're like, surprise, it was in my hand the whole time, Yorions are like way better in matchups like that. Yeah, 5 mana Yorion is so much better than Companion Yorion, <laughs> by like yep. a lot. And which is like kind of obvious, because we saw 5 mana Companion Yorion for a long time. Right. It had to get Especially changed. Especially the, the, the telegraphing aspect is surprisingly bad for you, given what... You know, Red Black Postboard has Agonizing Remorses, like PV had a bunch of Palaka Predations, or sometimes you just can't take a turn and put it in your hand because they'll get, like, a Kroxa and then escape it and take the two cards out of your hand, and then you're, like, you completely wasted a turn and you're done. I, I also think just, like, doing things on turns two, three, and four, and then following up on Yori on a turn five or six if you don't hear fifth land drop on time. Mm-hmm. To blink all your stuff is like far more powerful than, mm-hmm. or or at least far more. I'm blanking on the word that's like the opposite of reactive, proactive. Proactive. Yeah, it's far more proactive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's far more proactive, which is something I really value. Uh, sure. Just like being able to play something, you know, turns three, four, five, or three, four, two, three, four. Play your and get your value, and you've like cashed mm-hmm. out. You don't need to keep playing the long value game because you're you're refueled. And you can probably in a good spot to play the game from there. That's one of the things I really like about the green-white deck. Yep. And I think that it is possible to build the other Yorion decks as 60-card decks as well, if you want that sort of leverage in games. However, I think you lose some amount of points in the mirror. Maybe not as many as you would think, because yes, you do lose your free card, but it is an expensive card, and you get to be more focused you get to only draw the cards that you really want to draw and like you don't have to well i can't like take these omens of the sun out of my deck like that's not really a problem anymore once you're down to 60 cards and you you do get just like better sequences going from like two three four five basically and you also are a more you you're playing four Elspeth Conquers deaths where your 80 card opponent is effectively playing three Elspeth Conquers deaths. So that that is definitely better. Uh, you do lose in the like rogues matchup though, I think. Putting Yorion into your hand against rogues is like really, really, really good. So, you know, there's definitely a balance to be struck there. I kind of am interested in trying to build a 60 card Doom Foretold deck with a bunch of Yorions. See how that mm-hmm. works. Uh, I, I'd have to look at like the numbers and stuff. But I, I I like the focused Doom Foretold decks, and there's a lot of chafe. I don't really like playing like Omen of the Sun. <laughs> I agree. So if I can get that to work, maybe there'll be a, a 60 card Doom Foretold deck that's eases my mind that I've been all these issues I've been experiencing with the 80 card versions. Yep. I'd, I'd be into that. I, I am interested to see what you come up with. 
And this is kind of not an individual card choice thing, but I did want to mention Ishimura's Ugin deck, which is almost mono-red, little bit of black, bunch of solemn simulacrums, a bunch of Ugins, and some Iron Crag feats. Oh, was this deck? Out. Okay, okay. Yeah, I know what deck this is. I just didn't recognize the pilot. <laughs> yeah, this deck is kind of sick. I'm really into it. I This is another one of the decks that I instantly imported into Arena this morning. And sure. have not played a game yet with. Yeah, yeah. But that'll change, you know, within the next few hours, I think. Yeah. Just wanted to mention it. It is a really sweet deck. And I haven't played with it at all yet, but I'm gonna. So I, I'm interested in hearing your thoughts after after we spend some time with this. One of the things that I was really sad about when M21 was printed is that Ugin was reincorporated into Standard. It was just a card I really don't like being part of Standard. Yeah. But at the same time, I love casting Ugin. I've cast it in a bunch of different formats now. <laughs> it's just so good. It's so big. You feel really safe. I know. I haven't ulted Ugin in Standard yet, but it's only a matter of, t- matter of time. Yeah, just play more Ugins and you'll get there eventually. I, I missed Ugin completely the first time it was in Standard. I just wasn't playing during Cons of Tarkir. Mm-hmm. So now this is my Redemption Ugin arc. I've pretty much been playing exclusively Ugin decks on my yes. free time. So quickly before our Patreon question, I do want to mention our one Commander Legends spoiler that I care about, which is Opposition, opposition Agent, Tuna Black, 3-2 Flash. You control your opponents while they're searching their libraries. When an opponent is searching their library, they exile each card they find. You may play those cards for as long as they remain exiled, and you may pay... You may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast them. So it's just like a notion thief for tutoring, basically. But you get to tutor their stuff and choose the stuff. This is a hell of a response to any tutoring and in legacy, including a fetch land. Like, if this is a hate card in the matchup, you can respond to a fetch land and get value out of this thing. And then they have to remove it before they can do any of their tutoring. Yeah, I I honestly expected to see about equal play as Notion Thief, which you see like every now and then. <laughs> but I don't I don't know I I don't know enough about Legacy well, where this card is. Notion Thief costs four mana, and it's double colored. Yeah, and it's two colored. Like you can dark ritual this out okay. if you're playing like a Storm Mirror. All right, that seems excessively greedy to me, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you go like you see pass. They go fetch land crack. And you just dark ritual this thing out. You get him. <laughs> the game is over. It's done. You'd get their underground sea or their like uh, volcanic island. What, right. what do you they get, do? Right, exactly. You get their one of duel, and then they just like can't cast spells of that color or whatever. And then they can't infernal tutor either. And what are they gonna do? Remove it from the board? I don't think so. Well, I mean, if it becomes a like staple of the mirrors, then it'll only be in post board, and I guess every all the storm decks will have to have their their bolts in or whatever. <laughs> yeah, what well, I don't know this this card's like I'll wait and see what happens. Pretty much, it's it's some nonsense, but the fact that it is a hate card that you can get value from it off of something as simple as a fetch land when you flash it in the first time is like kind of crazy to me. So. I don't know. I, I think this will do stuff in Legacy, but we'll see. Probably not going to do anything in any other format. 
Probably not. I guess it's not even legal in all the other forms, right? Because this is a like. Oh, I thought that's what your joke was—that oh, no. it was Sorry. not legal in any other. Form. I was just thinking it was for some reason. Nope, only legacy and vintage. Um, do we have a Patreon question? So Ian in our Discord asks, "What makes you want to play a game?" Which is part, why do you like magic? But I'm also thinking of the recent success of Hades and what makes that game so enjoyable to you. Yeah, and I think Collins and I have kind of answered this a little bit before. I, it, and I know, like, the concept of, like, mastery and improvement at something and feeling like you're really getting there is is important to me. And it's tough because I get drawn to games that I then realize like I should not be playing at times. Like what? So stuff like games where there's a lot of advancement in the game, like Skinner boxy kind of stuff really does get like it really does get me going. And there's ways to make them fun and there's ways to make them such that I regret the time that I put into them. (laughs) Like I just got Pokemon Sword and I'm not totally sure that I should have done that, but I'm probably not going to spend like too much time on it. I'm just going to use it every once in a while. When I was playing Path of Exile and was playing like every league, that was kind of a problem because at some point I wasn't even having fun with it anymore. It was just too similar each time around and was I was like grinding through a lot of the same stuff. And wasn't really learning anything, wasn't just having a good time, and was realizing how much time I was putting into it. I think I have a healthier relationship with that game now, where, like, I'll play a league maybe once a year, or once every two years, or something like that, and see what the new stuff is. And so, like, the last league I played, there was a bunch of new content, and I did all of the new content. And that was very fun to me, to explore all of that. I had no desire to play a league of that right now. But it is, it's hard for me to sit here and say, like, objectively and without, like, thinking through every specific example, like, what makes something fun to me. But I think the important thing is that I walk away after playing and I'm not, not like, oh, shoot, I just, like, spent three hours doing that. That was really bad. I shouldn't have done that. So moving on from, like, Skinner boxes, I'm going to interrogate you now. This is my follow-up question before I answer it. Yeah, because I know you really. We talked on earlier podcasts. You really, really enjoyed Gris. That's not. That's not a game like that at all. No, and I. I do. So Gris is very story focused, although not really. It doesn't have like a. It's abstract. Super clear narrative. It's very abstract. You know, playing that game is like playing through a poem or a song or something like that. It is clearly a creation of love and was very carefully made and you get to enjoy the work that somebody else did to make something truly beautiful and it's a little different to me from you know game games like in that one you are really you know you were playing through a poem or a short story more than anything else and i do love that i i think that a huge part of me really enjoying something ends up coming from like the feeling that I get that like love and care was put into the game. And then this is the same with books and with movies and stuff like that. If I am feeling a connection with the creator through the thing that they've created, then that is really huge for me. And that makes me feel good about the thing and and makes it more fun. 
Hades, I think, is a really great example of this. And I mean, really, all of the Supergiant games are clearly made with so much love, and they're so carefully done. And just the, you know, little quality of life things, the voice acting... Although I appreciate the criticism that like everybody in every super giant game is just the super sexiest voice that you can possibly find. And it's also uh, just all in house. Like they, they do their voice acting. <laughs> they're good at it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but you know, like in Hades, like little things like that, you can pet Cerberus and the, the fact that they recorded like a dog, like shaking and stretching. They recorded those sounds from their own dogs to put into the game. So, like, you can tell how much they love the thing that they made, and they're, like, giving that to you. And it's a gift that they have given, and I really appreciate receiving that gift, and it makes me enjoy it a lot. And, you know, that that's a huge thing. And, and you know, like, totally different types of games. Hades is a skill-testing game where you feel yourself improving over time. Gris is a game where it is impossible to get stuck and it is impossible to die and you just get kind of gently guided on a journey through this narrative. Completely different games, but made with such care that I keep coming back to them and it. I hate feeling like an idiot for picking something up. Like, I hate playing a game and then running into something that's like, man, they just don't even really give a shit about me and my experience, do they? And sometimes that happens with magic, and it feels so bad. And that's what, like, really drives me away from a game. I'm gonna hijack your that part. Like, I hate it when a game makes me feel so terrible. Because I was uh, watching Charlie play a game, right? I don't even remember which game it was. But... I, it was a game I'd never played. Charlie never played it. It was like pretty early in the game. And Charlie comes across this dragon that's huge. And, you know, it's. He can't deal any damage to it. Any attack he does is just not atta- affecting the dragon at all. Doesn't even hit it. Uh, the dragon's not doing anything. It's not attacking. And Charlie's like, I, I can't get around this. What do I do? Like, walks back, tries to figure it out. And I'm just like, what about walking through the dragon? And he's like, are you crazy? And then that it turns out that was the solution. You just had to walk forward and the dragon was fake. You just walked through it. Uh-huh. And he looked at me and was like, how the hell did you know it wasn't a real dragon? <laughs> and I said, I, I didn't know. But like, that was the only thing that made sense to me. <laughs> uh-huh. And then he quit the game and didn't play anymore. <laughs> That's the right choice. Yeah. <laughs> like the game doesn't like give a, sh- if it doesn't, And that's a very specific, like, we're just throwing out, like, internal consistency here. But if you feel like the game doesn't give a shit about you, then why would you give a shit about the game? This is, like, one of the things, like, 30 seconds into Pokemon Sword, like, I got, like, almost motion sickness running around the house because Game Freak has no idea how to do a 3D camera. And then... I start like talking and stuff or in like the opening scene is like we well, you're in this huge Pokemon stadium but like the camera angles are all very boring and the like dialogue is in text because they just refuse to do voice acting in their games it's on the switch there's no voice acting and then 
the dialogue is just so stilted and, like, not things humans would say, which is, like, obviously what Pokemon has always been. Like, it's never, the writing has always been just completely atrocious. But when you go from, like, work of art games, like Gris and Hades, and then you are playing this, where they obviously just, like, like, yes, it's for kids, but they kind of just, like, don't really respect their audience. It's just like, well, like, if you're not going to show me respect, like, why would I bother? To answer the question for me... Yes. Because <laughs> I get yes. to do that, too. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's fair. I grilled you, right? But what I really like in games is, like, discovery and mastery and learning. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of the games I really, really like playing are generally deep or there's a large skill component to them. Like, I really like playing uh, roguelikes because, I mean, learning is literally built into the game. You're you're designed to die and figure out how you do your thing better next time. Mm-hmm. So I play a lot of those and a lot of different genres. I really liked, like, one of my favorite games of all time is Crypt of the Necrodancer, mm-hmm. which is... I don't, I don't know how big or how small this game is. I know it's like not very expensive on Steam. So if you like it or whatever, pick it up. But it's a really ra- random game where it's a... Uh, God, how do I describe this? A rhythm-based dungeon crawler roguelike? Yeah, I think that's a perfect description, yeah. But it's... You have to move to a beat. And all of the enemies move on the beat as well. So you have to figure out all their attack patterns and... The music's very good because it has to be in that game. Right. And there's a bunch of stuff to do. And it's, I played, I think it's like one of my top five or six games on Steam. I played that game a lot. And I, I just like games like that where you, things are generally simple. Like they don't, they're not super complex to get into, but they have a learning curve to them. So like, uh, Hades, another game I like. That game is also really, really simple at its core. Uh, you pick up a weapon, you try to kill people. You only have two or three buttons that are attacks, and you have a dash. That's it. You have four buttons, and you have to get through the underworld. And there's a lot to learn, like what the enemies do, what the different rooms are, what the power-ups are, uh, even like attack patterns you can learn and figure out your own stuff. And that's really good. Uh, one thing I don't like is when games are super 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 complex to like get into mm-hmm. uh, but i still end up playing a lot of those because i am a glutton for like learning how everything works yeah so like uh, i've played a bunch of dota 2 i really 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 love that game but it's a complex mess that i would never recommend anyone get into <laughs> uh, i played a lot of league of legends which is the same thing i played i, I picked up team fight tactics this year which is a game I absolutely hated because it doesn't explain anything. The The game right. just doesn't have a tutorial or anything. Or at least it didn't when I started playing it. There's one on the phone now, which I told someone to play like a month ago because uh, I thought that they would like it. And they did like the game, but they did the tutorial. And I was like, I don't understand anything about this game <laughs> because... <laughs> It's just not explained in any way. The tooltips are non-existent or horrible. And I didn't want to let the game beat me. (laughs) So I just sat there and played a bunch of games to try and figure out how it worked. Which is a terrible way to go about anything. I would never recommend anyone do that. Right. But I Yeah, and it's a multiplayer game. So, 
like, you just keep getting beat up by real people over and over again. Which is, like, it's it's amazing that, given that that is the opening experience of the game, that it's gotten as popular as it has. Yeah, I think they have horribly mismanaged onboarding in that game, and they could easily improve it. But it's, right. it, like, Hearthstone Battlegrounds is also an auto-battler that just does it so much better. Like, yeah. it's so much easier to get into. But I, I also really enjoy uh, TFT now because I know what the things are and how to learn mm-hmm. things. And it's a neat experience every time. It's like still playing League of Legends like you. The game doesn't change from game to game. Or I guess as a whole, but it does from game to game. Yeah. Uh, and I don't like games that are always the same. <laughs> like I don't play any Path of Exile. I hate Path of Exile. <laughs> or path to exile po no it's path, path of yeah. exile it's the one that's not the magic card name yeah so, because like game or what world of warcraft anything like that i hate those games because it doesn't feel like i'm meaningfully progressing in any way mm-hmm. uh, like even though i know that's not really true it just feels like the games like roguelikes that i really like playing there's a really easy visual tell like i'm easily improving for me to run Whereas from yeah. Path to Exile, since there's no visible end point, like you can just pick your own endpoints and keep going forever. I don't know how to deal with that. I don't like doing that. I just want to know like what the end point is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I actually do like... So in Path of Exile, when I am choosing to play a season, I do like picking out my goals for that season because there's specific endgame bosses to kill and stuff like that. And you have to progress both in, like, making yourself have a good build and good gear and stuff, and also just your own skills. Like, some of these bosses take a few tries to kill so you can get the mechanics down and stuff. The problem with Path of Exile, though, is that they haven't really gotten down an understanding of how to make complex bossing work with their engine and also with the game type. Like, some of these bosses, it's, like, very expensive to open the fight effectively. Like, whether it's in currency or, like, game time spent to get to the fight. Which is really frustrating because it's like, I want to practice this fight so I get good at it. But every time I do it, like, it takes a bunch of game time to unlock the fight. And that it just, that it feels like, oh, you're really disrespecting my time here. And it gets back to that, like, man, I don't really... I, I don't feel good after this. Whereas Hades, like, you you practice it every single run. Like, every every 20 minutes or so, you get to Hades again, and you get to practice the Hades fight with whatever settings, with whatever difficulty modifiers you have on. I, I, I appreciate that, like, kind of very obvious seeing yourself improve thing too I, I think that that is really cool to see yeah that's like the main thing i like because the like story games like gris or journey uh there's the couple ones i've played i kind of i like i don't dis enjoy that's not a word dislike <laughs> <laughs> like i do enjoy them when i play them right mm-hmm. but i don't fall in love with them like i know a lot of people do like i know you do yeah, uh, I do. Where I, I just play through it and I'm like, all right, I'm done with that. And I I don't know. It just doesn't feel like a complete experience to me, even though I know it is. I like know it is. And the game's supposed to be pretty and visual. And then I, in the end, it just like 
I appreciate playing it, and I'm ready to move on, and I'm probably not going to think about it too much, because I'm just a yeah. heartless robot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I am just, like, personality-wise, I am particularly narratively inclined, and, like, this is one of the things, I don't generally like roguelikes very much, uh, especially when they are just kind of, like, empty reiterative experiences that is just like here take this and get better and next time use this weapon and get better like that on its own the fact that hades has all of these like intertwined unlocking unspooling narratives as you go through it like really makes the experience a lot better for me yeah it's hades is incredible for that uh super giant just does that really really well like it's one of the things i like about darkest dungeon 2 which is a game i played a lot of but i don't like super love or anything Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's it's mostly just an rpg that's like super punishing and i don't love rpgs because it feels like it's kind of like path of exalting right where i'm not actually learning anything my numbers are just going up yeah uh but there are different like things to learn in darkest dungeon and the narrative is really good or intriguing Mm -hmm. at least so i played it a lot and I do, I do enjoy that game, but it's like not my favorite or anything. Yeah. Oh, I also, strangely enough, like really like puzzle games. Uh, I like uh, Portal and the Talos Principle, and I played Baba is You. Were you in the house at SCGCon when I was playing that game in front of everyone? Uh, I don't think so. I think I missed that. So basically, I really like puzzle games, but I'm very bad at them my brain just (laughs) straight up does not work (laughs) so this was brought to the attention of our friends when i was staying in the house in roanoke for the invitational Mm -hmm. and they had baba is you which is like a switch game and they wanted to see how i would play it and none of my solutions because it's a puzzle game that's like relatively open-ended none of my solutions made any sense and i couldn't figure out the simplest stuff but the hardest stuff didn't phase me. It's just like a puzzle anomaly. <laughs> so it always feels very rewarding when I like complete a puzzle because I don't know how difficult it's intended to be, but they all <laughs> to me are like either extremely easy or possibly difficult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get too easily frustrated by puzzle games generally like once I hit my limit on the difficulty of the puzzles. I, like, I don't even know that I'm necessarily, like, bad at puzzle games, but once I get to the point where they are frustratingly difficult, I just, like, don't want to stick with a puzzle that I'm not seeing how it gets solved. It's not fun for me. Sure. And I, I have a very high tolerance for exposing myself to my own stupidity. <laughs> yeah, I just do not. It's, <laughs> it just feels... It makes me feel bad and dumb. I I take it as a humbling experience. <laughs> Because I often get, like, arrogant in my own head a lot of the time. Yeah, that's fair. Just got to bring yourself down to earth. Maybe that's too deep for this section of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. This is a good... I'm I'm glad that we delved into this. But it is probably time to end the episode. Okay. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. We really, really appreciate your time. For our patrons, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to become a patron head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. Yeah, we're going to have to record another bonus episode soon. It's getting to be about that time. So Yeah, we'll have to figure out a topic. 
if you would like to suggest one, definitely suggest one in the Discord, or suggest one on Twitter, and if you promise to become a patron if we do your topic, then, you know, yeah, deal. consider it. <laughs> if you want to find us on social media, I'm tweeting from at CCR underscore Grindcast. Lee is also on Twitter. I'm at Lee McLeo. Thanks so much, and have a great week. Bye.